Well, if you can believe that this is week three of Advent, which means Christmas is two weeks away. Two weeks away is Christmas, and if you're a Christmas tree person, I found out this week that some of you are not Christmas tree people. Couldn't believe it. Hopefully, uh, if you are a Christmas tree person, you have your tree up, so you're able to enjoy it, and you are able to, you know, just kind of make the most of this season that goes by really fast. We got our tree right after Thanksgiving, and uh, it was totally a hashtag Brickle Living moment because I picked it up in a shopping cart and took it back in a shopping cart uh, to the condo. I felt like such a city slicker. And... Uh, you know, I, I think, like, it, when Christmas hits, I really try to embrace the season and take the most out of it. So I'm listening to Christmas music all the time. I love getting the tree up as soon as possible. I'm growing the Christmas beard. You know, things that are really important. I'm trying to figure out where I'm going to get my ugly sweater for the party on Thursday night because it's going to be an ugly sweater party. And we as a church, we're trying to take the most and really enjoy Christmas and and really, you know, process it and do as much as we can together. We have the Christmas party, as I said, coming up on Thursday. Tonight, after the service, we're going to have hot chocolate and get this homemade marshmallows. Like, what does that even mean and how do you do that? We're going to have it. Also, last week we have a fish fry, which I don't think has anything to do with Christmas, but we had it. And if you're here, it was awesome. And I want to give a round of applause for Matt, Lisa, James, and Kinsey. Who- going to be a new tradition, Christmas fish fry. Somehow they go hand in hand. But that's what happens like in Christmas. You really want to take the most of it. You want to enjoy it because it goes by so fast. I remember when I was a kid, I really wanted to make the most of Christmas. And so when I wrote my letter to Santa, I didn't write a letter. I wrote a letter that was researched and strategic. Because I knew that if I asked for too much, I'd be disappointed. And maybe Santa would pick the wrong presents. And if I asked for too little, I'd be kicking myself because then if I get everything, I'm like, man, I should have gone a little bit. So I researched. I really thought about it. I got the make and the model. How much is too much? How little is too little? You know, what do I really want to get out of this Christmas just to make it the best? And uh, it only failed one time. And that was when I thought to myself, if I only ask for one thing, there's no way Santa can't get that one thing. Because I'm only asking for one thing. I asked for a monkey, a live monkey. And I said, you know, Santa, I want a monkey. And my mom was like, you know, I don't know if Santa delivers live monkeys. I was like, listen, I want a live monkey. That's it. I want a pet. I'm going to build a tree in my room. It's going to be awesome. And I found out on Christmas morning Santa hates monkeys. He just, he can't stand monkeys. And so I didn't get it. It was a failure. But I I really researched, you know, I really, I spent time thinking about my list and and really processing to take the most out of Christmas, And the reason I tell you that is because tonight, uh, this passage in Isaiah 35 takes some research. Maybe you felt like that as we've been reading through Isaiah, but this passage in particular really takes research. And so if you're like me, I put this cap on a lot. You're going to have to put your nerd cap on for a bit. Because Isaiah writes this passage in such a way that you have to really think carefully. If you just read it through, it will just wash over you. But he intentionally writes this passage in a structure so that you can really understand the depth and the center of what he's saying. So what that means is, he wrote this passage in a chiastic structure. Raise your hand if you've ever heard about a chiasm. Okay, we've got a few people. <laughs> this is awesome. Okay, so here's what that means. It's a structure that was written, they use it a lot in the Old Testament. No one really uses it now. But it's, it's a way that you write a, a passage 
where the beginning and the end mirror each other, and then you work your wealth. I put a little example here so you can figure it out. So the beginning of the passage and the end, they mirror each other, they reflect, they connect. And then they work all the way down so you get to the very center. So you can see up there, so you can follow. Some of us are visual. Verses 1 through part of 2 connect with verses 9 through 10. And then verses 2, that second half of verse 2, connects with verse 8. And verse 3 through 4 connects with verses 6 and 7. And the center of the passage is verses 5 and 6. And here's why I'm telling you that. Here's why I'm telling you that this is how he wrote the passage. Is because I think in order to do the passage justice and to really mind and understand what Isaiah is saying, we have to discuss it in this way. We have to work through it this way. We have to process it this way. Do a little bit of research or else we're just kind of talking about what we see instead of what was intended. And so we're going to work through this structure together and ultimately we're going to end up at the very middle, at the very center of the passage. And what you're going to see is that Isaiah is building this. He's building a passage to reach the center. I call it the sideways arrow. So we're going to jump in and we're going to begin. And, and those slides are going to be up there so you're going to be able to, to understand where we are so you don't get lost. But here's what it, it, it starts. In the very first verse, he says, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus, like a flower. It shall blossom abundantly, and rejoice with joy and sing. And so he starts in the very beginning. He talks about a desert. He's saying there's a desert, and this desert is going to undergo a transformation. It's going to blossom. It's going to become abundant. It's going to be full of joy. And it's not typically something that's synonymous with a desert, right? So a desert is a difficult place. Another difficult place is like cold weather. Cold weather is difficult. We don't down here like today was kind of cool. Um, but if you're from a cold weather area, you know that. It's difficult, but you can mitigate against the cold, right? You can put on layers, you can sit by the fireplace, and you can actually enjoy the cold. You can go snowboarding and skiing, and you can build a snowman, have a snowball fight, and ice skating, and all of you that are from cold weather places are really mad at me right now, because you're like, I know, and I'm missing out on that, and I'm stuck here, it's raining all weekend. But listen, in, this, in January, when every, all of your friends and family are afraid that their pipes are going to freeze, you'll be at the beach. So... You know, you're going to miss a little, but you're going to get a lot. The desert, though, unlike cold weather, you can't mitigate against it. That's the point of it, right? You can, you can remove clothing, you're still going to be hot. The sun is oppressive, and it is, in fact, dangerous. The wildlife is scarce, but what is there can kill you, and you don't even know if it bites you. Water is scarce. You see illusions, mirages, things that aren't really there. It is a dangerous, dry, desolate Place And we try to enjoy the desert, right? We try to have sandboarding, but snowboarding's still better. We have dune buggy rides and camel tours and these things. We're trying to enjoy the desert. But even that is reserved to like a one, two, or three-day affair. Nobody goes and like spends two weeks in the desert. Um, that's not exactly enjoyable. It's a hard place. It is a difficult place. And Isaiah starts here and he says, the desert... <clears throat> This hard and difficult and desolate and dangerous and place that's full of illusions, it is going to be transformed into a place that blossoms. It's going to become a garden. It will be abundant. It'll have flowering trees and plant life. Essentially, you know, in a desert, you have oases in different places. The entire desert will become an oasis. It will transform into an oasis. And it will be synonymous now with joy and gladness and singing instead of 
hardship and difficulty. And he connects this, right, in the chiasm to verses 9 and 10. So look at verses 9 and 10. He says, No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. So he's saying there's going to be no danger there. So the lion, as we saw last week, will actually be in this garden, but this lion will be a herbivore. So Isaiah here is saying that the lion won't be there. He's using what the lion represents. He's saying there's no danger in this desert. It used to be a place that was dangerous, but now it's going to be transformed into a garden that's blossoming and abundant, and there will be no danger. It will be gone. Why? Because the redeemed, he says, will walk there. This desert, which is an analogy, right, to life, and we'll talk about that, life and all of its struggles and its hardship and how it feels dry and empty and full of illusions. This is going to be transformed, this world, this life that is as a desert is going to be transformed into a blossoming garden with no danger, with blossoming fruit trees, and the redeemed, it says, will walk there. And the word redeemed is synonymous with the word release because redemption has to do with the removal, the release of a debt that is owed or someone that is chained up that is released from their chains. And so he's tying two things together here, Isaiah. He's saying the desert is going to be released from its condition. This world, this earth, what we experience is going to be released from its condition of desolation and emptiness and danger. And it's going to become a blossoming garden. But so too, the people that live there are going to be released. They're the redeemed. They are the released people. They are going to undergo a transformation as well. He says in verse 10 that the ransomed, he uses ransomed and released together, same idea, of the Lord shall return and come to Zion. So this garden is Zion. It is in fact the city of God. And so he's talking about what will happen, the transformation of this earth, where they will come with singing, everlasting joy will be on their heads, they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. He says the ransoms, meaning those literally who were held captive and were what? Released. The ransomed will be there, the redeemed, those that have been released from all of their struggles, all of their sin, all of their shame, all the things that have been chaining them up, they're going to be transformed. And they're going to live in a transformed place. That at one time was like a desert, but now is going to be like a blossoming garden. Sorrow and sighing will be gone. Instead, this place will be synonymous with joy and with singing. And this is the perfect analogy, right, for him to start about what the promise is of what God will do. Because the desert is, is a perfect analogy to life. It epitomizes our life, right? It's hard. It's difficult. It can feel dangerous. It can feel empty. It can feel like we're chasing after illusions. And that's what Isaiah wants you to connect with. He wants to imagine, as you're starting this journey in his passage, to connect your life with the desert. To say, it does feel like a pilgrimage through a desert. That I'm walking through difficulty and hardship, and I'm chasing after illusions, and I feel empty oftentimes. And you know, that's a promise, actually. It's a curse that's given in the very beginning of Scripture in Genesis 3.17, where God says he's going to curse the land. It's going to curse the earth, which means life will be a desert. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. And it can feel like that. It can feel like 
You have bad news after bad news, disappointment after disappointment, and even when things are going well, you know that eventually, in the future, there will be suffering. It will come. Even when you're on the mountaintop, you're going to fall down into the valley because that's life. That is life for everyone. Life can feel empty. You can feel like, you know what, I achieve and I create and I strive, but I still feel empty. You can feel like, you know, culture continues to tell me that if I really focus on myself and try to better myself, then I'm going to be satisfied. But I don't feel like I'm actually getting there. There's still parts of me that are empty and missing. I feel like life has so many illusions. Marriage is an illusion. A healthy relationship can feel like an illusion. A job that you love and enjoy can feel like an illusion. And certainly life can feel dangerous, not only physically, but emotionally you can feel dangerous. And so, so much of life for us feels like we're swinging in and out of anxiety, right? In and out. The dangers of life. And Isaiah says here that I want you to understand as we're journeying to the center that there is a promise that the redeemed, the ransomed, those that are going to be released from their condition are going to inhabit a place. That is, in fact, also released from its condition. It will be the city of God where there's no sign, there's no sorrow, there's no danger. It's, the desert is gone. It is now abundant. It is full of joy and gladness. It is a blossoming garden. And as he moves his way forward to the next step in the chiasm, he wants you to, he wants you to know something. He wants you to know that this promise that is available is, in fact, a gift. So look what the next step where he says... In the second half of verse 2, the glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. <clears throat> the majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. He says that this will be given. The blossoming garden that at one time was a desert, but now is in fact not. It will be given. Notice what is inside of it. He says that it will be given Lebanon, the glory of Lebanon. Lebanon. Lebanon was known for its beautiful cedar trees. It will be given the glory of Carmel, which is a beautiful place. I've had the privilege of going where the mountain really climbs out of the sea and it's lush and beautiful with vegetation. It will be given the glory of Sharon, which was known for its beautiful roses. That this place that is given... Is absolutely beautiful. All of the things that you can imagine as the most beautiful aspects of life. The beautiful rose and the mountain coming out of the sea with its vegetation. And the, the beautiful trees of Lebanon. They will be here. They will be a part of it. But, notice what he says. There is going to be a, a vision that preoccupies everyone that's in the garden. It's going to be the supreme vision. And that's where he says that they will see... The glory of the Lord and the majesty of God. He's talking about the redeemed and the ransomed that live here in this garden. They're going to see the glory of God, meaning the inherent value of God. They're going to see his inherent value and they're going to see his majesty. They're going to see his dignity and his worth, his splendor. That is going to be the light at the end of the road. As we're going to see as they're walking down this road in the garden, that it's going to cover even the most beautiful things that you can imagine in this world, it will be supreme. It will be what we're preoccupied with as we walk down this road in the garden. One of my favorite books in the past few years is uh, Cormac McCarthy's The Road. Have any of you read The Road? Oh, no one. So, maybe some of you. 
just didn't raise your hand high enough. Um, but the book <clears throat> is an incredible book. It's a book full of ambiguity and heartache. It is a difficult book to read because the story is about a father and a son who are walking down a road. But they're walking down a road in a world that has gone through an apocalyptic event a decade before. And they're journeying south to avoid the winter that has been heightened by this event. And so as they walk down this road, uh, they're trying to survive. And this road is dark. It is heavy. It is hard. It is full of desolation. It is full of silence besides the rotted trees that are falling. Dust covers everything. If you find a crumb of food in this world, that is a joy. To wake up in the morning is to be brave. To, to stay away from people is your supreme value because cannibalism is rampant. And they're walking down this road not knowing where they're going. And they've been journeying for 10 years. And this father and this son are moving south. And there's a, a line in the book that says, All that is left is borrowed time in a borrowed world and borrowed eyes with which to sorrow it. And they move through this road as they make their way south. And, and, and they, they say that there's some of the last good guys remaining. And their goal is to carry the fire. That's the term that they use. And the idea is that there's some of the last people that are carrying hope. That are in fact holding to what it means to be human. And they're carrying the fire forward, not knowing where they're going. And I'm not going to spoil uh, the story. But I do want to read the very last paragraph. It's very cryptic, and I think it's perfect. Uh, it's a perfect way to end, and some people really frustrate you when you read it because you're like, what the heck is going on? It's not going to ruin the story, but you're going to know the ending. Uh, if you're one of those people that like, reads the end before the beginning, if not, plug your ears. Um, but he, he puts this passage at the very end in a world full of sadness and heartbreak and depression and just gray. And I think the reason he puts this is to give a glimmer, just a glimmer of hope at the very end. He says this, Once they were brook trout in the streams and the mountains. You could see them standing in the amber current where the white edges of their fins wimpled softly in the flow. They smelled of moss in your hand, polished and muscular and torsional. On their backs were vermiculate patterns that were maps of the world and its becoming Maps and mazes of a thing which could not be put back, not be made right again. In the deep glens where they lived, all things were older than man, and they hummed of mystery. So the imagery there is powerful, it's mysterious, and I think what Cormac McCarthy, when he's writing this, is putting in the very end, he's, he's giving this glimmer of hope. Maybe, just maybe, carrying the fire is worth it. Maybe there's something beyond. Maybe the world is in fact just in its becoming and there's something greater ahead. Life in this world is a desert and it is a, way worse than we could ever imagine or live through. And yet he gives this mystery, he gives this glimmer. Maybe there can be hope in the midst of emptiness and sadness and desolation. And he says at the end, and that all of these things hummed of mystery. You see, mystery... And hope are often connected. Because mystery gives you a sense of optimism. You're, you don't know what's ahead. You don't know what's to come. And so there's a chance that it could be 
really good. But the other side of that coin is fear, right? Mystery can bring fear or it can bring hope. But what if mystery has a promise that's attached to it? That's when you have the biblical idea of hope. The biblical idea of hope is assurance. It's a promise. It's guaranteed. It may feel mysterious, but it is in fact guaranteed. It is in fact assured that you have been released and that there is a release coming, a total release in the future. Diedrich Bonhoeffer writes in his uh, letters and papers from prison and he says this, and this is beautiful. A prison cell in which one waits and hopes and does various unessential things and is completely dependent on the fact that the door of freedom has to be opened from the outside is not a bad picture of Advent. See, what he's saying is that Advent is a time where the people of God waited and they waited and they waited on this mysterious promise that a Messiah would come. They held on to hope, assured hope, that God was going to open the door. He was going to come into the world and, and be the Savior, the King of Kings, the Prince of Peace. And they waited. But for us, Advent is the reality that the wait in that regard is over. We are waiting for the promise as we're moving down the chiasm that the whole earth and life as we know it, nature and us ourselves will be fully redeemed. But hope has come. Peace has come as we previously sang. That the, the prison door was opened and we are able to now, through the eyes of faith, to see the glory and the majesty of God, we are, to, we are able to grasp that the promise that was mysterious before has actually come for us. And the promise of what is to come still can bring hope because it is a promise. Though it is mysterious, it is a promise. And God always keeps his promises. And sometimes you just have to look up and realize that the door, right, the prison cell has already been opened from the outside. Instead of looking around and doing various unessential things. And Isaiah here attaches this idea of seeing the glory of God. Seeing that he's opened the door of freedom to you. Seeing that the mystery has a promise with verses 6 where he says, or verses 8. Where he says, and a highway shall be there. So as they see the glory of God, that the prison door has been opened. That they have been redeemed and ransomed. And this promise is in fact no longer mysterious in a way that brings fear. There will be a highway there in the midst of this garden. And it shall be called the way of holiness. And the unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they were fools, they will not go astray. So there will be a road. And those that are walking on the road are walking with hope. There's a sense that they belong here. That this is their road. This is their place. They will not go astray. Even if they're fools, they're not going to leave the road. And it says that the only people that will not walk on this road are the unclean. And that's interesting because he says the unclean will not be on the road, but fools will be on the road. And you're like, wait, wait, wait. If anyone is like broken and sinful and unclean and messed up, it has to be foolish people. I mean, foolish people are people that keep doing the wrong thing over and over and over again. They're making foolish decisions over and over again. And yet, 
Isaiah says fools will be on the road, or the redeemed walk, the released, those that have been transformed, but the unclean walk. So what's he saying? Notice what the road is called. The road is called the way of holiness. And those that walk on the way, even if they're foolish, deserve and are invited to be there. They won't leave. Well, what does Jesus say in John 14, 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So who are the unclean? The unclean are not those that you know, are more foolish than the ones on the road. No, no. The unclean are simply those that have not gone to the way. They have not realized that the prison door was opened. They have been looking around doing various unessential things and not realizing that freedom is available. That transformation is open and available to all. That peace has come. That the promise was made a reality for us as we celebrate and we wait in Advent. That those that are on the road are not better, not morally superior. They are simply those that have come to Jesus Christ through faith. They have come to the way. Because if, you, if you're like me, you feel foolish a lot, right? So we realize through faith that Jesus Christ has opened the door of freedom. We see his glory, his value, his worth, and we believe that he is in fact who he said he is. He is the savior of the world come into town in Bethlehem as we celebrate during Christmas. And that he lived a life that we couldn't live. And he died a death that we deserve. And he rose from the grave. We believe that. So we walk out in faith with the Holy Spirit to life outside of the prison cell. And then here's what we say. I, I just got to go grab a few things. I think I left a few things in the prison. I'm just going to get them all right back. Don't worry. And we get in there, right? And we go back in the prison. And then we start playing around in the prison. With, and we start doing unessential things. And we realize, oh my gosh, why did I go back in the prison? And then we get up and we go back through. And we, I think I left one more thing. So we go back in the prison cell. And that's our life, right? It's foolish. The door's been opened. And yet we keep going back in the cell. And then God in his mercy keeps saying, come on. We will never leave the way. We'll always stay on the road, even though we're foolish because we've gone through Jesus Christ. And he says, as Isaiah builds almost at the end, he says that here's the reality. That hope has come. And there is hope for you, even in the midst of the desert, when you begin to realize that mystery has a promise. And the promise has become a reality in Jesus Christ. Where it says in verse 3, Strengthen weak hands and make firm feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and fear not. When you're in the desert, strengthen your weak hands. Make firm your feeble knees. When you look around and other people are anxious, because that is so much of life is being anxious, tell them, fear not. Why? The next verse, behold, your God will come. This is an assurance again, a promise with vengeance and recompense. He will come bringing a gift, essentially. And what is that? He will come and save you. He will release you. He will redeem you. He will ransom you. He will put you on the way, even though that you are foolish. And you will never leave. He will open the door to the prison cell that we've all been in because of our sin and because of our brokenness. And he invites us out. And he has promised us a future reality that is transformed and perfect. The desert will become a garden. And we, in our life, and our nature, will be transformed as well. That is the promise here. And so he tells you, not through grit, not through just, you know, I'm going to strengthen my hands. No, but through belief that he will come and save you. 
you can, in fact, actually find hope in the desert and strengthen weak hands and make firm feeble knees and encourage those who are anxious because Christ has come, he says, to save you. And he connects this to verses 6 and 7. This is part of the renewal in you. This is the hope that enables you to be strong, to not be anxious, to have hope, to make firm your legs when they're weak. He says, for the waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. The haunt of jackals when they lie down on the grass shall become reeds and rushes. He's saying that God will cause a transformation. That those things that are dry and desolate will burst forth with satisfaction and cool, refreshing water. That those things that are burned will become a pool. Those things that are thirsty will be filled and satisfied. That there will be renewal. And verse 7 really jumped out to me. It says, burning sand shall become a pool. So he's connecting here. He's wanting you to identify that in the midst of the desert, there's actually hope. And he says, burning sand. He's attaching this to you. Burning sand will become a pool. Well, in the desert, one of the most unique things about the desert are mirages, right? I don't know if you've ever seen a mirage, but if you look off in the distance, you see a mirage, and what does it look like? It looks like burning sand. It's hazy. It's kind of smoke-like. looks like the sand is literally burning. But a mirage, the illusion is in your imagination. You see what you want to see. So you're in the desert, and you want to get to the oasis, and so you look forward, and you're like, there's an oasis, but maybe it's a mirage. But maybe it's an oasis. So you go after it, right? And you get there and you're sad. And there's no oasis. When I was in college, um, I camped a few times, which I'm horrible at. I'm terrible at camping. I've never been able to camp more than one day. I always eat all the food. I don't understand how you go more than one day. So we go camping. A group of guys, we're going, we're going to go camping for the weekend. We lasted one night. Um, But we know, you know, it's okay. So we're out the first night and we're like, you know what? First and only night. We need to play capture the flag. I mean, this is great. It's a cool, crisp night in Tallahassee. It's hazy. There's this old museum house that has this big open lawn in the woods. Like, let's go play capture the flag. We're like, yeah, let's do it. So we go out. We go over to this museum. We get, get in the property. We do the whole thing. Split into teams. And uh, so my team, we were strategic, you know, hashtag research. So we're talking about it. And we say, okay, we're going to divide into teams. and say, Carter, you're going to be an attacker. So we had defenders, we had attackers, and here's what we're gonna do. Carter, you gotta find a way over there. You gotta sneak over there and find the flag, locate it, but lay low. All right, I'm ready. We're gonna create a distraction at the line, okay? When the distraction comes, you're gonna know. The bird call, I hear that, it's game time. So I'm gonna leap out, I'm gonna get the flag, I'm gonna come back, so I'm ready. So I see my truck, I got the woods, I can get through the woods. So game starts. I get in the woods, you know, I'm covered in black. I got, you know, mud on my face. I'm ready. I'm taking this real seriously, guys. Because, you know, I want to be the hero. I want to do it. I want to win. So I get through the woods, and I'm like, I think they're quiet. So I'm going through the woods. Then I'm in, you know, I'm down in my little perch, right? Like a lion about to attack its prey. And I'm waiting for the distraction. I see see the flag right there. So the distraction happens. I hear the bird call. I'm like, here it goes. So they start moving. I lunge out. I mean, I'm ready, guys. I grab the flag, I turn back, and I'm running, and I'm, I'm, they're chasing me behind, and I'm like, I'm going to do it. 
I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I see. I got clear ahead. I'm good to go. I can see where the line is. I'm running. I'm running. And then, bang! I slammed into the corner of a fence. My shoes went flying off. And I flipped in the air. Cut my shin down to my bone. And I'm a terrified of catching the fly now. I mean, absolutely terrified. See, what happened was, I had this mission, right? I'm like, I am going to get to the end. The end is in sight. I know I can reach it. I'm going to win. I'm going to do it. Everything is clear. And then I ran into a fence. Because it was a mirage, right? It was an illusion. I couldn't see the fence. It was a little hazy. You know, but I didn't think it was there. The reason I tell you that is because, I don't know if you connect with this, but that feels what life is like. Right? We have all these illusions. We have all these mirages that we run after, and we think we're going to get there. We think we're going to make it. We think we're going to win. We're going to succeed. We're going to be the hero. It's going to be accomplished. And we hit fences over and over and over again, and our shoes fly off, and we cut our legs to the bone. And we think to ourselves, you know, if I can just get out of this relationship and get in this relationship, then I'm going to be happy. And we hit a fence. Right? Or if I can just keep or find that perfect someone that I know is out there, once I get that person and once we get married, then I'm going to be satisfied and we hit a fence. Or if I just quit my job and, and take this job because this job will make me happy, then I'll be happy and we hit a fence. If, if my paycheck and my bank account can reach this level and I can purchase the things that I want and be comfortable and secure in my life, feel much better than it does right now. If I can just move out of Miami to another city, I'll finally enjoy the city and I'll find good community and then we hit a fence. If I can just leave this church and go to this church that provides all of these things, then I'll really grow my faith and I'll really feel connected to God and then we hit a fence. If I just focus more on myself and if I just grind and if I just work hard, I'm going to achieve my dreams. There are so many illusions that we have. So many illusions and we run after them and we run after them and we keep hitting fences over and over and over again. And we just keep saying, let's start the game again. Just keep running. And culture says, keep running. Run, run, run. Yeah, you're going to hit a fence. It's okay. Get up and keep going. You're going to break through that fence. You're going to be like a juggernaut. Boom, fence is gone. But you never get there. You always keep running into fences. It feels like a mirage. And here's what Isaiah says. Here's why you can have hope in the desert. Because God will transform the burning sand into a pool. The mirages will actually not be mirages. What you see is actually what you'll get. It won't be an illusion. You will, in fact, find the oasis. And he says, the very end, this is the center, and this is the X, that what you will find is actually total Redemption, the making of all things new. He says in verse 5 and 6, the very center, the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. All of the present weaknesses will be gone. There will be no more illusions. There will be no more mirages for what you see is what you get. There are no more disappointments. There will be total redemption. Notice that Isaiah here brings up the eyes and the ears and the legs and the tongue, everything. And the promise at the end of Scripture, what Jesus says to us is what? Behold, 
I am making all things new. And you can write this down. It is a promise. It is mysterious, but it is a promise. For these things are trustworthy and true. See, mystery has a promise. And that promise can bring hope. Because it is going to come. Because Jesus Christ is in fact the oasis. He is in fact the one that brings satisfaction. He brings joy. He transforms your life. He's opened the prison cell so you can walk out and behold the value and the worth of who God is. See, Isaiah wants to write this. He writes this passage in Achaia because he wants you to start at the beginning and move slowly to the point to where you realize that God has promised to make all things new. You and everything else in this life is going to be made new. Danger, sorrow, sighing, removed. And that in the meantime, hope has actually come. In the person of Jesus Christ, who is the way. And when you realize that he's opened the door, and he invites you to be on the road with him, and that he brings redemption into your life, guess what? You can strengthen your weak hands. You can make firm your feeble legs. You can encourage those who are anxious. You can trust that God is, in fact, going to bring a pool out of some of the aspects of your life that feel like burning sand. Feel like you're just running in the fences over and over and over again. The problem is, we need to be focused on the right thing. And the right thing is that Jesus Christ is at the end of the road. That's where we're walking. It's what preoccupies our vision. And this is the hope of Advent. That a mysterious promise was made flesh on Christmas. That we can trust and believe and find hope in despite the fact that life is a desert. There's hope. And hope has come. I want to end uh, by reading one of the most famous passages in all the scripture. Psalm 23. And hopefully you're able to hear this and read this with new eyes. Because David understood this. Though he was waiting for the promise to be made flesh, he understood that hope has come by fixing your eyes on Christ, by fixing your eyes on God, and trusting in Him, even in the midst of a desert. He writes this, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, He leads me beside still waters, He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm in the desert, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. I can overflow and have hope even in the midst of suffering. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Let's pray.